Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking. It's Ellie here and a lot has changed since we recorded our last episode as Cornerstone Asset Management has now joined the Waverton Group and we've been rebranded as Waverton Wealth. Rebecca has also gone on to start her own exciting business adventure. So I'm now joined by my colleague, Sean, who's going to be our new co-host. Sean, could you give us a little introduction, please? Thanks, Ellie, and great to be a co-host on this relaunched podcast. So I am a trainee financial planner at Waverton Wealth. I joined about six months ago and have been working with the other advisors, helping clients make decisions around their own capital and, and, and wealth and how that's invested. And it's been really interesting just to see how ESG and ethical investing is in the forefront of people's minds and excited to be part of this relaunched podcast and, and, and learn more about it with some of the guests we've got lined up. Thank you very much, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. And we're excited to have you on board and talking about all things ESG, sustainability, etc. So we're going to put you on the spot a little bit and uh, seeing as you're new, ask you to do our favourite reduce, reuse, recycle. So if you're ready, Sean, what would you like to reduce? It's a very Edinburgh focused thing probably, but it is just the general amount of roadworks in Edinburgh. It takes forever to get anywhere and not only is that inconvenient, I'm sure from like a car fumes point of view it's also very bad yep totally agree with that one especially when the so-called low emission zone is coming in and we're all sat in traffic especially as we're now commuting back into the office more often it is it's not very fun in the morning so moving on then what would you reuse please sean so uh reuse i have a 13 month old boy at home and as a result, my running trainers do not get used anywhere near as much as they used to. So now that he's over one, I think I'm going to try and reuse those more often and get out more than, you know, once every two weeks, twice a week. That sounds like a good plan. I need to do the same. So yeah, good answer. <laughs> and um, last but not least, um, what would you recycle, Sean? So I think this has maybe been mentioned by a previous guest, but some sort of education system recycling and this is maybe very linked to the fact of my job but it feels like personal finance should be taught more in schools because people leave school and then end up with huge debts credit cards all sorts and they've never been taught how it all works so i think less algebra and more personal finance that's another great answer and hopefully something something we can keep exploring throughout this podcast. Thank you very much for that, Sean, and for a great introduction. Okay, so as always, there's four keywords linked to this podcast today. So today the four words are engagement, greenwashing, regulation, and transition. Okay, thank you very much, Sean. So keep an eye out for those words. This is for our ESG, the current state of play episode, which we spent talking to Paris Jordan, CFA. Now, Paris has been on our podcast radar for a while now. And as chance would have it, we all now work under the Waverton Group, which has given us a fantastic opportunity to share Paris's expertise and enthusiasm. Yeah, so Paris works for Waverton Investment Management as a senior multi-asset investment analyst. 
and has established herself as an ESG and ethical investing expert. She has won multiple awards, including Investment Week's Women in Investment Award for 2021. She's featured in CityWired 30 Under 30 in 2020 and in 2021, and was one of the We Are Cities Rising Stars of 2020. And she's also been highly commended and shortlisted for many more awards. She's also the co-founder of VirtueFest, which is an ethical investing network for professionals. On today's podcast, we discuss all things ESG and get an update on the current state of play with ESG investing. We started a conversation with Paris by asking her a little bit about her background and career and how she's ended up where she is today. So firstly, thank you very much for joining us today, Paris. We're going to start, if you could give us a brief introduction, kind of your background, how did you end up as an investment analyst and what got you fascinated by ESG and ethical investing? Yeah, absolutely. Great question, because how did I end up here? So I actually ended up here by accident which is always, always great to hear. I came out of university and was just approached by a recruiter to join a role at Fidelity in their call centre and to answer telephone calls from advisors, para planners and what are any other kind of sophisticated investors asking questions about their platform business. Immediately kind of taken by investing, I didn't really know anything about it and learned as much as I could. And over the subsequent years, I did lots of studying you know, the IOC, the IMC, my CFA eventually, and kind of worked my way up through various roles, starting obviously in the back office, middle office, and finally moving to that that front office role. ESG was slightly, again, one of those opportunities that I seized that wasn't really kind of obvious to me. Personally, I'd always been involved in charity work. I'd done lots of fundraising before. I'd run different projects. And when I moved into my investment role, there was this really small portfolio, kind of dusty in the corner. It didn't have many assets in it. And at the time, it was known as an ethical portfolio. And we don't tend to use that word so much these days, but it's an ethical portfolio for these clients. And it was being serviced, but no one was really taking a huge amount of ownership for it. And with some of my kind of personal interests, I thought, well, this could be a really good way to what I'm interested in outside of work, but also with the investing passion I had. And so I took it upon myself in around 2016 to start looking after this portfolio and really kind of digging deep and speaking with fund managers who had been interested in this space or running products for a long time. And naturally, it kind of evolved, whereby I was then seeing some of the new products on the market. I ended up being the specialist that people ask those questions of. And ultimately... I fell into investing and then found a small portfolio, which I, I really made my own. And that developed into a variety of other things. And I guess the ESG person that, that I am today. Well, thank you for that, Paris. It's really, really interesting to hear. And obviously very glad that you are now the specialist you are. And we can have you on the podcast today. Thank you. So just following on from, from that, Paris, could you give, well, give Ellie and I and also the listeners a bit of an overview of the different types of ethical, sustainable and responsible investing that there is. And if you are looking to invest in this space, what are some some of the key things that you'd want to consider before before doing so? That is an incredibly wide question. That's and also up for debate all of the time. But I mean, 
there are different segments within uh, ESG. So ESG has now been a catch-all kind of term for well, ESG, ethical, sustainable investing. But within that, there are absolutely subsectors. So there are plenty of frameworks in the market that we have been developed by lots of different uh, bodies. But one of the ones that I tend to use quite frequently is by the Impact Investing Institute. It's quite widely used um, across the industry and it's called the Spectrum of Capital. You can give it a quick Google and there'll be multiple different iterations of it. But ultimately what it does is it shows you the different ways you can invest in ESG from, let's call it lower impact through to complete impact, talking from not interested in ESG at all to philanthropy, so just giving money away. And within that space, you mentioned a number of the names there, Sean, sustainable, engagement, screening uh, and all sorts. So to give almost a bit of a background, you know, ESG investing really started off as ethical investing, which was very much a screening process. And when I talk about screening, I mean, I don't want to invest in alcohol. I don't want to invest in tobacco. And what you would do, you would remove those um, companies or funds from your universe. But over time, that has evolved. And certainly in the last few years, it's, it's evolved very, very quickly, so much so that it's taken a lot of effort to almost keep up with it. And um, it moved on to positive screening. So it's of saying I don't want tobacco, it would say things like I want a company that produces a product that solves this issue, or I want a company that um, is helping to solve the environmental crisis. Very specific, but then it moved on to sustainable investing. So, what you're producing is it sustainable for not just the organization to survive in 20 years time, but for all of the other factors that go into that. So is it sustainable in terms of how you produce it and how it how you get rid of it? Is it circular in terms of does it have a lot of outputs? So that's another facet of kind of ESG investing. Then you've got engagement where you can actively sit on, I say not even boards, but you can own shares in companies where you have a voice. So you vote and you can tell management that you aren't happy with their progress that they're making towards net zero. So there's a huge variety of different approaches out there. And I've only touched upon a few, if I'm honest. There's thematic approaches as well. So if you're interested in sustainable water and waste, you can invest in companies that are really trying to reduce their waste or companies that are specifically targeting making sure that fresh water is still available for us in you know 30 years time there's a whole host of options available which can make it very almost confusing for the the average investor let alone someone who actually spends their time working on it thank you for that paris like you said it's it's a vast topic so that was a, a really good brief introduction thank you for that I think it's so hard, even even trying to do the podcast, you're like, which term do you use? Ethical, sustainable, you kind of have to trot, trot them all out. <laughs> it takes forever. It's a bit of a tongue twister. With this episode, I think we're going to focus more on ESG, so that's environmental social governance factors that the investment teams consider when looking at an investment. It's kind of become, as you said, a catch-all. It's kind of, you know, the big thing that everyone's talking about at the minute, the go-to buzzword. Why, why do you think this is? And do you think we're placing too much importance on ESG as opposed to these other types of ethical, sustainable investment? Or does it all kind of, do you think it all works together? It's a fantastic question. So I, to kind of summarise, I've already written an article on this and we have a weird obsession with acronyms in this industry. I think that they're, they're very easy for us just to roll off the tongue and then we understand them and nobody else does. And in my article, I went into details about why, why is ESG been the thing that we 
that we've gone with. And I just think it's easy to to say, and oh, here it is, and we can hang on to it. But you're right, you know, we don't even explain what it means. Like you just had to say environmental, social and governance. And I think the industry's picked up on it because there are parts of it that they were already doing. It does, in its name, really does capture a lot of things. So the environmental element, you know, I already touched upon different approaches that you can take within that, whether it's water, uh, whether it's environment specific, climate. So environment does capture those things. Social is the one that in my view is a little bit further behind. I think there's a lot of interesting concepts that are going on in the marketplace. And at the moment, it seems to really only be around workers' rights um, and diversity. So I think watch this space in that one, because there are some really good things coming to the market. And the G, uh, so the governance element, is actually something that I would argue that most good companies have been doing almost forever, because ultimately when you're doing investment research, you should be making sure that governance is upheld. Um, So I think ESG has been the thing that we've focused on because it's a natural evolution of something they were already doing. And because it does give the freedom of being able to decide what environmental factors and what social factors you can choose yourself, it's allowed different firms to just add on to their process or evolve their processes so that they can then find or introduce elements that are just additive to what they were already doing. Now, we'll probably talk about it later. ESG is not equal and different firms will do ESG very differently. But having that capsule term means that people can be subjective within that um, and come up with a process which is suitable to what they're trying to do, but suitable for their clients that they're trying to meet as well. Thanks, Paris. And just sort of take, taking that the next the next step then. So what are the current changes that we're seeing in the ethical, sustainable, uh, responsible, ESG, whatever we want to call it, what what are the changes that we're seeing in this space just now? And given your experience, what what do you think, you know, the ESG space will look like maybe 10 years from now or or will it be a bit more mainstream or do you think it's yeah. just going to get, get wider and wider? Like where's it going? Yeah. A, again, another, another really wide open question for me there, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> um, so... I mean, I mentioned already that this space has developed so, so quickly. Part of that's very, very exciting, especially for somebody like me who enjoys investing and the reason you get into it in the first place is because it's always changing. So adding this next layer on is even even more exciting. Some of the recent changes I've tended to see is a lot of people moving away from that kind of negative screening focus. So a lot of people are, are wanting to generate change or create change and they want to have those discussions and get involved and see that they're making impact rather than just avoiding particular things. And I think part of that is because we've seen a change in public opinion as well. So people know now some of the challenges that we're facing, particularly with the environment. And that has taken a lot of screen time recently. And I do think that is a good thing because it's really encouraged people to look into the the other elements as well. But what that what that's resulted in is people wanting to challenge their managers or their companies on, well, what are you doing to actually tackle this major issue? And for me, that's fantastic because by putting, you know, whether it's a little bit of pressure, soft pressure or hard pressure on those companies, they have to come up with answers and they have to think about it. So it's really shaping their strategies in a way that we weren't seeing when you just didn't give them money because historically other people would just give them money. So now if you are providing capital to them and having those discussions, they can't ignore you. They have to think about these things. And so that has been, that's been exceptional. Other things that I've been seeing are really granular, which is great. So before we talk about environment, now we're talking about um, 
carbon zero. Now we're talking about biodiversity, circular economy. We're talking about waste and we're talking about all different elements that realistically weren't considered before. You just say, oh, the environment, I don't think I'm harming it. But now you look at things like, you know, carbon. So scope one, scope two and scope three is like different levels of carbon that are uh, emitted. So you're really getting to the granularity of what are you actually doing? And I think in many ways that is I mean, that's incredibly positive because it means that these things are brought into view so they can actually be tackled. Whereas before it was very much just, oh yeah, no, the environment, I don't think I'm hurting it. But really, if you actually pull back many of the layers, there there were externalities that we just didn't see. Yeah, it's certainly something we've noticed with clients as well. They want to take a more and more impactful, produce more more meaning and more impact with their pension, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a bit of a challenge for us to be able to educate them and how they how they can best do that as well. But, you know, people want change, and I'm really pleased to see that investment managers and companies alike are providing opportunities to to kind of seize that and create that. Again, not all, which is which is why I guess I still have a job because it's working yeah. out who does and who doesn't. <laughs> but but it is great to see those developments. And you know, the last part of your question there was where's it going? I suspect this. This trend will continue and I've already noticed that lots of people are now willing to invest in companies that historically they they very much didn't want to because they now know that they have they have a voice and they have impact and they can create change. And ultimately, we need to invest an astonishing amount of capital if we want to meet a number of the, the targets that have been set by governments or international bodies. And that capital has got to come from somewhere and it's got to transition. It's the first time I've used that word, but it's got to transition. We can't just shut one thing off and expect everything else to suddenly work. And that, that's not how it works. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's got to transition quickly as well. As you said, obviously ESG has become really widely incorporated and many are claiming that they've been doing it for years without even realising. Underneath the surface, how do we know that fund managers really care? Does does it matter if they care or not, or just that they're doing it? And how do we know that they're doing what they're saying they're doing? Sorry, yes. another big question. But <laughs> no, another big question. I can, you know, I speak but important on, ones, like, yeah. very important questions. You know, every panel that I sit on, a greenwashing question will come mm-hmm. up. Because, oh, there'll be more, don't worry. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you prepared me. So, how, I mean... Are, company, are some companies doing what they've always done and now just telling us about it? I mean, the short answer is probably not. I wish I could say yes, but I think they've been doing an element of it. So we mentioned about the governance and they have been doing that. Certainly people that I would invest with have been doing that over the longer term. There are those that have been incorporating environmental and social factors into their investment processes, again, without realising, purely because when they're looking at a company they would say, oh, okay, I can see that there might be more droughts in this region and how much water are they looking at? And that could affect the price or that could affect how much I'm willing to pay for it or affect the business over the long term. But what they've not done is made strides to actually almost document that in a way that has a framework and that I'm looking at the environmental. So some of it's subtle. And you know, ultimately, if you're investing in a business that is in a region that does require water, but it's in a region with droughts, as good investment practice, you'd probably pick that up. Um, but realistically it's that it wasn't front and center so when companies do or investment managers do tell me that we've been doing this for a long time firstly remain skeptical because the likelihood is that they probably haven't but then work out what they mean by that so sometimes with greenwashing and i've you know i've spoken a lot about greenwashing there are companies 
or investment managers that will go out and try and market to try and get assets. And they are trying to just raise assets. But most asset managers and investment managers aren't trying to do that. Some of them genuinely don't have the knowledge behind them to realize what the extent of environmental research is. And they think that their threshold is is sufficient. So it's often not that they're trying to mislead you. It's just sometimes that their threshold is different from yours and it's just poor communication. So it's more miscommunication than actual misleading, which sounds great when I explain it. But obviously, if you're a client and you've then bought something thinking you've got something sustainable and it turns out you haven't because what they view as sustainable is totally different from you. I mean, it's not great, but that's where we as me as an investment manager and, and you guys as, as advisors need to really have those conversations with clients to find out what they're looking for and then translate that up to me to find the most appropriate products for that. It is a, it is a you know, very detailed and often cloudy space because there's so much going on. And equally, it's even more complicated because what my views on sustainability or ESG are will be very different from yours, Ellie, or yours, Sean. And so by the time we then refer those back and, and so on and so forth up the chain, you've already got a difference of opinion, let alone difference in com- or let alone a breakdown in communication. So greenwashing, yes, we've spoken about it a huge amount as an industry, and I've certainly spoken about it. But there aren't many companies that are going out of their way to mislead you. It's just a miscommunication most of the time. Thanks, Paris. That's that's really insightful. And yeah, a lot of good points raised there. Partly that's why I love this space because there are just so many differences of opinion. There's so many directions you can go, so much you can learn. So yeah, thank you for that. No worries. I often find, yeah, it is, it is one of the big questions. But actually, when you boil it down, it's just ESG is subjective. It's incredibly subjective. So it's just really finding finding out what you're trying to achieve and applying that to it. Yeah, absolutely. Which I guess brings in more active management as well, because you need someone to help you with those things because it is just so nuanced. Yeah. And then and, and with that nuance, <clears throat> like the EU, for example, brought in the sustainable finance disclosure regulation last year. And that it's a very complex piece of regulation, but it has provided some clarity to an otherwise complex area. And, a, and a, as we've spoke about, a, a hugely growing area. But there's the critics have basically argued that it has now provided so, so many loopholes to provide this greenwashing. So as the space continues to evolve and grow, how do you view the role of regulation in defining some of these things to, to remove this subjectivity and there's always going to be that sort of difference of opinion as to how sustainable some things are versus others. But how do you view the, the role of regulation going forward? Yeah, another punchy question. You guys are really giving it to me today. So we're going to solve regulation right here and now. No, no, we're, yeah, we're genuinely not. So <laughs> I think the, the difficulty with regulation is that you need to allow, I mean, with all regulation to some extent around in financial industry, you need to allow the freedom of creativity to create products and solutions to these really, really big challenges without, so without, so not being too prescriptive, but also providing a framework that will stop people going off too far and making sure that it's pulled back in. And I guess that's why some of the European regulation has been under some scrutiny because we've got, and I'll say the terms, we love to use the terms, they don't really mean anything to anyone, but we've got Article 8 and Article 9. Um, Article 8 funds are essentially those that consider ESG within their investment practices. Article 9 funds are those that have an objective to to meet some ESG criteria. So they take it a next level and it's embedded completely in what that fund is trying to do. 
Article 8 funds, there are, how can I say this? There are more of them than I thought there would be in terms of companies that are applying for them. But I think that comes back to what I was talking about a moment ago around thresholds. And they believe that they have reached a certain threshold because they consider ESG in their process. ESG investor or sustainable actual investor end client might not think that reaches their hurdle. So again, while there's this big group of Article 8 um, funds, you need to make sure you understand what the level of ESG they are doing within that because there is a wide scope. Now, does the regulation need to be harsher in that part? Potentially, but actually, you know, the UK, and I'll touch on UK regulation, we haven't adopted the European SFDR is what's called. We've created our own. We've actually dropped the F. So we're SDR is what we're, we're producing. And that is a bit more detailed. So instead of having these two categories, it's actually proposing. So it's not in place at the moment. It's open for consultation. It's proposing different categories for funds. So you can, instead of having just yes and no almost, or yes and yes again, you can have sustainable funds, responsible funds, and you can break it down that little bit further. And I think they've done a really good job. Never thought I would say that about the FCA, but they've done an excellent job in terms of, okay, this is what the European framework looks like. Let's talk to UK investors. And they have done, they've done some really fantastic panels and roundtables, and they've taken what we've said on board. And so that is just, in my view, another step towards better regulation, where you're allowing the flexibility of being responsible and what is responsible and letting investment managers decide what that is, but still having a threshold as to what the minimum of that is. So as with everything, and particularly with a space that is developing and evolving so quickly, I've mentioned it a million times, regulation is usually a couple of steps behind. It's just the way, it's just the way yeah. it is. And with it being a couple of steps behind, they also still need to gain that knowledge. So I'm really, really pleased to see that they'd be engaging with investors in the space. Mm. And I think that's what's going to create better regulation and and hopefully, you know, prevent some of this accidental greenwashing that that, that has been quite spoken of in, in the press. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it certainly sounds like, as you say, that FCA are, all, are sometimes slightly behind consumers, but it seems that like they've taken quite a pragmatic approach to how they're going to roll out this regulation, which is which is obviously good to hear. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're both very, very interested. You can actually see their proposal for SDI. You can give it a quick Google. And I think they've just done the first round. I think they'll be doing another consultation round to you. So welcome to provide any feedback. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's coming up soon. But it, it is great that they've, they've engaged that much. I mean, it's never, it's never going to please everybody. Like you said, there's all different shades of, of how far people want to go but it is it's it'll be interesting to see what comes out at the, <laughs> after all the consultations as you said I mean investors they don't often I guess a lot of it is about education and communication and and really getting underneath the surface of what investors are looking for but quite often they don't get the chance or, or don't think to look beyond at the full picture beyond you know the top 10 holdings and the charges and you know what what we give them on a fact sheet. Do you think that's something that's allowing greenwashing to get worse? I don't know. It's hard. You can't force someone to have a conversation that they're not interested in. You know, for example, BlackRock, one of the mm -hmm. biggest 
players in the ESG space. Larry Fink has kind of become the the godfather of, of ESG with his with his yearly, or sometimes it's even more than once a year, his letters. But then recently, I was reading they got caught out over a series of emails that called their ESG strategy into question, where they reassured this Texan oil baron that they wouldn't be selling out of oil, and just to kind of ignore what Larry Fink was saying all about his recent comments about the urgency of dealing with climate change and how important it is to to start transitioning. And then there's also there's a former chief investment officer and BlackRock employee, Tariq Fancy, really, really interesting guy. I mean, controversial views, I'm sure. But he's been on a mission to expose what he calls the reality of ESG investing, saying that it's little more than marketing hype, that it's a really dangerous distraction from actually dealing with taking with what we're dealing with, taking action to help the planet. I've got a quote from him, which I quite liked, just thought-provoking. He said, imagine the planet is a cancer patient and climate change is a cancer. Wall Street is prescribing wheatgrass, a well-marketed, profitable idea that has no chance of curing or even slowing down the cancer. What are your thoughts on, <laughs> on that? So I think the very first thing to say about the, the whole Black Rock example that you just gave and Tariq's well article that he wrote as well I mean give it a read if you if you can I'm sure you'll be able to find it very yeah, easily I think it's about 42 pages or something it's quite long <laughs> yeah. is that BlackRock was found out so let's make that quite clear there are many businesses out there who are doing ESG and it is up to people like me who professionally are there to assess them and work out are you doing the right thing are you not and then provide capital to those that are. So clients will then give us the money and then we can assess that. Um, and BlackRock were found out. And ultimately, BlackRock would not have been in a portfolio of mine that's particularly sustainable anyway, regardless of the marketing machine. You know, that that's partially my job is to, and I say this, lift the hood of a car and take a look at what's inside. Um, and I can do that. I have tools to be able to do that. I have systems. I have direct meetings with these people. I can run the entire portfolio uh, rather than just get the top 10 holdings. But equally, I have a full-time job doing that. So, and essentially that's that's probably why I have a job in the first place. You know, clients are doing their day jobs and we can't sit down with, well, we could if they, if they wanted, I guess, that time to go through an entire portfolio as to why, what, where, how, what are the challenges? What have we spoken to them about? So ultimately, they tend to get the top 10 holdings because that's how we streamline that down to them. But it's not just the top 10 holdings I'm looking at. And it's not the top 10 holdings that even you two are looking at. You know, we're looking at what does this fund do? What is the company doing behind it? Are they supporting ESG, sustainability, climate, whatever it might be? Are they not worthy of our time? And if they're not worthy of our time to meet those clients' requirements, then the client will never get a fact sheet with the top 10 holdings on it. So it's just what comes out of the bottom. There's so much that's going on behind that. And there are firms that I think very highly of in this particular space, and they have raised a huge amount of assets over the years, and they haven't had any scandals because they're doing it well. But ultimately, there is an element that we have to build trust with our clients and prove to them that we've chosen these particular products because they fit your requirements or they fit what you are looking for. And then 
we can explain to them why a top 10 is a top 10 and what that fund is trying to achieve. If they have any questions, they're welcome to come back to us. But this is the part where we have to build trust with them to allow them to give us their capital so that we can then put it in a way that's going to benefit not just their financial returns, but also their sustainability perspectives. So without kind of getting into getting into the weeds of what company's good, what company's bad, there are good ones, there are bad ones, there are those that are found out and it's my job and people like me to, to invest the capital in a place that's suitable rather than get caught up in some of these scandals, which can happen not just in ESG as well. You know, there's plenty of scandals that have taken place with other funds because of illiquid assets and things like that. So that's that's essentially, that. that's my pledge to clients. That's what, that's what I'm here to do. It's hard to talk about ESG at the moment without touching on the world events and geopolitical events that are, that are ongoing, but we're not going to talk about specifically that because it's changing all the time and we're not quite sure when this is going to be published. But what the conflict has brought up is the the need for constant reassessment of what is ESG and how quickly world events can change screening processes, for example. And Nestle is a great example here. So they've justified staying in Russia by saying they wouldn't be making a profit. They had a huge social media backlash and now they're saying, well, we're going to stay in Russia, but we're only going to sell the bare essentials. So I think it's baby food and, and uh, medical supplies. And it's actually those goods that's part of the reason they're well-rated in some ESG circles. So Nestle has a bit of a history of controversy, but this is really highlights the power of social media in this space. And what are your thoughts on how ESG can use divestment and engagement in these kind of scenarios to maybe improve behavior or alter actions of large corporations like Nestle? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic example, if I'm honest. And at the moment, like you say, lots of changing things. I think the classic investment manager response here, but genuinely, I think the first thing is to really look at what clients are seeking. So there are different frameworks that you can use when you're looking at investing. Some of those are UN frameworks about restrictions. And so there are many investments already that wouldn't have invested in certain areas, regardless of what's going on, because they uphold certain frameworks. Those that don't, I think, then the next question, you know, what is their investment approach and why? If a client or me still believes that they're maintaining their appropriate investment framework or process, then in many ways, that's okay. I then understand that there are clients who may not want to be invested in certain companies or certain regions, certain sectors, in which case that's then a question almost for a reassessment of their portfolios. And this is what these funds are doing, or this is what these companies and investments are doing. Do we need to change that based on what your view now is? In many ways, it's not Although I can put pressure based on what clients are thinking, two different fund managers, different fund managers are doing different things. So I need to, in many ways, assess, okay, if this is a sustainable fund and you're now invested in something that I don't think is sustainable, that's when I'll then put pressure on. If you are an engagement fund and you're invested in Russian gas or oil because you are sat on the panel or you're sat with them to try and encourage them to improve their strategies, as we mentioned earlier, do I still think it's appropriate to still be invested to make sure that those strategies are applied? In many ways, yes, because your whole purpose of that product is to engage with them. That doesn't change based on the kind of government activities because that company still exists. 
yes, there's definitely financial and other investment considerations like liquidity. Has you know the has the market been stopped in that country, for example? Do I need to then consider that these shares go to zero? So they're more of the financial element. But from the ESG perspective, what was it we were trying to do in the first place with these products, and then work out whether it aligns with it from there? You know, there will be some people that are happy to invest in your example of Nestle, and they're still give, providing uh, baby food and medical supplies. But there are other clients who will not be happy with that. What I can do is provide a range of options that fit those clients' views and then uphold those views as best as my ability. So this is one of the things in some ways, you know, I mentioned earlier how much I love in the engagement element because it creates impact. But that doesn't mean that I don't provide negative screening solutions for my clients. If a client doesn't want to be in a tobacco company, and as much as I think personally, oh, I wish that we were so we could talk to them about changing their strategy, that doesn't matter. That client doesn't want to be in a tobacco company. So I need to provide options to suit that. And it's almost the same as what's happening in the current environment at the moment. And this current environment will happen over again and again, obviously with different 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 circumstances. But I have to look at what's our approach trying to achieve. Is that still viable in the current environment? And, and so that's that's the way I look at it. Really go back to what that client's looking for and amend their approach if if they if they have changed their mind. And yeah. you're allowed to change your mind. That's yeah, you know, that's, yeah, exactly. That's the great. Yeah. That's the great thing about ESG and people I meet. You know, we're constantly learning. Changing your mind is a good thing. There's never black and white, and that's mm. what I found working in ESG. You know, if you cut off necessities to Russian people, you're then affecting Russian people as well as obviously showing your stance with Ukraine. So it's it's one of those, you know, where is the line? I don't have the answers for that, but it's certainly something that makes what I do very, very interesting because I can provide a range of solutions rather than just say, here's one or the other. And actually me and my colleagues were debating some of these, you know, social media pressure elements because from, you know, from their financial perspective, they were saying, well, if they don't do this, they're going to lose profits here, here and here. And I said, well, actually, You've got to think that there are other influences on the share price, as you've just said. And if Nestle or whoever it might be decide that it's better for them to, you know, remove or or some, we see it sometimes where companies align themselves with a cause, a you know, a positive cause, whether it's LGBTQ or whatever it might be. And yes, it might affect profits, but they must have done an assessment working out that their reputation would have taken a greater hit, which would have caused profits to take a hit further down the line. So it's it's not just oh what's coming in the door it is that you know how do how does society view you as well and i think they classically those elements have been really really hard to put financial numbers on and esg is you know particularly the s in that particular circumstance is something that's really um, this is why i'm excited about the s is something that actually does have value but it's how do you value that within a share price so yeah it's very fascinating yeah, it really is. And, you know, it's, I think it's, it's a new, really evolving space for businesses as well. You know, how far do they go? How much of a, a stance do they take on things? It's something that they're still grappling with. It's not just about the business making a profit anymore, but also all these other factors. So obviously the other big ESG question, you touched on this briefly, it's on everybody's minds what to do about oil and gas. Obviously, I'm not expecting you to, to answer that, um, certainly not in this podcast. But on people's minds, there's two things at play. You know, is this a chance to accelerate the transition to clean energy or is it going to push us into opening up more oil fields, looking more at fracking or stronger allegiances with other nations like Saudi Arabia, which obviously comes with its own issues? What, what are your thoughts on this situation and 
kind of investment in oil and, and gas in general? Is it for you? Is it engagement, divestment? So it's engagement and, and divestment in many ways. So it's divestment from companies that aren't recognizing there's a transition. And there are some of those out there, some are out and out climate deniers, um, which is an interesting and fun one for me to deal with. And then it's engagement with those who are trying to be better and trying to move towards net zero or trying to move towards renewable and green energies and helping them to do so. And oftentimes some of those organizations are still oil majors and they do need to move. And there's this frustrating conversation that I, I often witness between, well, why do I want to give my money to an oil company? But if that oil company has a strategy and needs capital to transition, then they're probably going to use that capital or they should be used, not probably, they should be using that capital to transition. Now, you've raised a huge number of questions because, you know, energy is something that is so embedded in our lives. Ultimately, we need energy. To, to have the society the way that it is today, and it's not going to change tomorrow, we're not going to go into some dystopian future, you need to have energy. At the moment, some of the framework and infrastructure in place does not support a huge amount of renewable energy. Don't get me wrong, there's been a lot of work, but ultimately, if you think about it, over the last, let's say, 100 years, probably not quite 100 years, we have built and created a society that is upheld, upheld by brown energy. You need to replace all of that infrastructure to create a green energy environment. And then beyond that, there are lots of different details that need solving. So things like solar or wind. What about battery storage that goes along with it? You know, you don't have to worry about storage or to the extent you do with this, with, with fossil fuels. You can continue burn, send it through, absolutely fine. But the sun's only out for, well, in summer, probably 14 to 16 hours a day, but winter, mm, you're not getting that at all. So you then need to make sure you've got the infrastructure to retain the energy so that we can use it when we need it most. So it's all these little things that um, go into it. We are not going to shut off oil tomorrow. We're not. What we need to do is make a transition plan. And there are plenty of brilliant investment opportunities out there. And they are opportunities and they do need the capital. And some of them are renewables. And we've seen lots of money go towards renewables. But a lot of it's actually the middle stage. You know, how do you get off of brown and move to green rather than just investing in the green itself? And there, that's where I'm very excited. There's a huge amount there. But it does mean that we need to bring some of these, you know, old energy companies, let's call them that, along with us because they are still providing the bulk of our energy at the moment. And that's just that's just a fact. We can't we can't change that. And you can see if there's underinvestment in companies like that and we've put money into green energies, but we haven't done that transition and we haven't provided capital to the old companies, There's you're then going to see cost of energy go up because that's still where we take most of our energy from. And they just haven't actually built anything in the last however many years to support that. So it's all well and good go thinking I want to get to B, but you've got to get to B in the first place. So I guess lots of points there, but ultimately... The transition is the key part. And it is about that word transition. It's not just divest from one and invest in you because a lot of the old companies are going to be the solution to the new world. Yeah, I think transition's got to be one of our four words <laughs> for the episode. You know, as as we've seen, you know, situations evolve, change every day, and we're, we're still in a process of that. I think, you know, what's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine at the minute has maybe brought it to the forefront of everyone's minds again. But as you said, there's a lot going on in that space. There's a lot of 
different companies on different ends of the spectrum all working hopefully towards a transition goal and a transition plan. There's two points to that as well. You know, there's the energy transition and then there's energy security. And that's what people have been talking about at the moment. They've been talking about the security of the energy that we're getting. And the two are definitely tied. But one other point that I think is really, really integral and we haven't touched upon it is something called the just transition. Uh, I'm unsure if you've come across this term. I think it's very well known that there are plans in place to transition to renewable energies or green energies. But within that, there's a lot of societal outcomes that will be affected. So people currently working in industries that might not be here in 40 years, what do you do with those people? We know as well that energy prices tend to hit those in the lower rungs of society harder. So just transition is not just about getting off of dirty energy to clean energy, but it's about making sure that social welfare is considered and people are not disadvantaged because of this transition. And that's that hasn't it's got some airtime, but it's certainly not got enough airtime at this moment. And and obviously, like you said, it's getting a little bit of airtime. I think people are starting to think about it more at the minute, especially, you know, the rising energy costs and and that's obviously hitting certain certain people harder than others. So yeah, definitely a good debate to be had there. We'll maybe save it for another podcast episode. And just just going back to some of the, the, the geopolitical tensions that we're currently witnessing, one of the areas that ESG is traditionally divested from is the defence industry. And with what's going on in Ukraine, some there's a bit of a debate as to how defence can be invested in to, to defend defend people as well. So could you explain a wee bit about that? debate and the ESG angle on the defence industry? So this is a really tough question because as we've mentioned already, everything's subjective and it depends on a client's view. So my apologies if I almost opt out of answering this because I have, again, a range of tools which or a range of investments which reflect both sides of the argument. There are those that say, no, no defence whatsoever. It's encouraging wars a bit dramatic it's you know it's facilitating but then again the other side of that is well it's defense isn't it and so it's very much what a client is comfortable with if traditionally most esg funds do not invest in defense and that's that's almost a clean sweep across the board and some of them will be a bit more specific about what they don't invest in or whether if a larger company produces a certain amount of weapons should they be excluded based on the amount that they factor into their revenues? So if they if they are more than 10% of a company's revenues, it does lots of other things, they know they can't own them. And that's almost the the standard. But there certainly are funds who who don't or who don't have those requirements in place. But the general the general rule in ESG is that we, we tend to avoid those those types of investments. And it's quite unlikely to find many with them. Whether that's now reassessed because of what's going on, I think it depends on what clients are after. So most of the products that you see in the market are driven by feedback that I give to fund managers, that I get from you guys and so on and so forth. If we were to see enough people wanting to have some of those um, hurdles or restrictions loosened, then maybe. But frankly, I, I'm, historically, it's been very much a it's been a it's been a hard no i don't foresee it changing massively in the future there might be like i said if there might be investments out there that can suit those requirements but mostly it tends to be a blanket no thank you so much for for all your time and insight today paris it's been a really fascinating conversation 
We're going to just wrap things up now with our reduce, reuse, recycle session as always. So hopefully you've had a little time to, <laughs> to think about this. First of all, could you tell me what you would like to reduce? I would love to reduce the amount of complex terminology that we use in the financial services sector, including but not limited to ESG. <laughs> we have to explain that to clients every time. And I just think if we simplified things, then it would be much easier for all of us. So that, that's one of my one of my fun ones. <laughs> That's a brilliant answer. I can't believe we've not had that on the podcast before. We talk a lot about simplifying the language. So yeah, brilliant answer. I love that. So next we'll move on to what you would like to reuse. I would love to reuse my car. So I am one of those people that bought a car 10 plus years ago and has used it the same one ever since. I've never upgraded and it has been so sturdy and so wonderful for me. And now it's getting to about 100,000 miles and I know I'm going to have to buy a new one, but I also know that the most green car you can have is the one you've already got rather than buying and having production for a new one. So eventually I'm going to have to give in and buy a new car, but I would love to reuse my current one. So lastly, what would you like to recycle, please, Paris? So this is a, probably a fully loaded one. I would really like to recycle the legal system in the UK, mainly because a lot of the laws that we have are not up to date. There are plenty of things that they do not cover. And consequently, what I find is that it perhaps doesn't uphold those who are more disadvantaged in society versus those who aren't. And so I would quite like to recycle that entire system and put something better in place. Fantastic answer. I would love to have a conversation about that at some point <laughs> when it's not the end of a podcast. It's almost like I've got personal experience. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you so much. Those answers, brilliant answers. Great conversation today. So thank you thank very, you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much, both of you. Really appreciate it. If you would like to hear more about Waverton Wealth's Responsible Futures portfolios or find out more about sustainable and ethical investing, then please get in touch with us at podcast at wavertonwealth.co.uk. Our portfolios are linked to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and invest in companies that aim to make the world a cleaner, greener, fairer place for everyone. None of the content of this podcast is intended to be recommendation for investment. If you invest in any form of asset-backed investment, values go down as well as up, and you may not get back the full amount invested. The Forward Thinking Podcast is hosted by Ellie and Sean and sponsored by Waverton Wealth Planning an award-winning Scottish financial planning firm who have created the Responsible Futures Sustainable Investment Portfolios. You can find the podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we will post details of future episodes and guests. Just type in 4 Podcast. <laughs>